is your host, Lindsay Rowland. Today we have Daniel Gade, a retired Army Lieutenant Colonel and a nominee candidate for United States Senate in Virginia in 2020. Also, he is the co-author of Wounding Warriors, How Bad Policy is Making Veterans Sicker and Poor, which will be the primary focus of this podcast today. Hello, Daniel. How are you? Hello, Lindsay. Happy to be with you. Thank you so much. So excited to have you here. Just throwing it out there. Love the book, but I want to delve into it. Could we start out first with a little bit of background on you and kind of what a little bit about your military career? Yeah, totally. So I am from a super patriotic family. I grew up in North Dakota and my my family expectation was sort of that we would, that all the sons in the family at least would serve in some way and that the daughters would be people of service in some way, you know? whether they served in the military or not was irrelevant, but we were a family that serves. And so my dad who fought in Vietnam, my military lineage goes back all the way to the founding of the country. Some thought, probably not enough. Like many of us, I enlisted in the army at 17 months and maybe three, no, 17 years and maybe three months. So I was barely 17 when I enlisted. And if you look back, I was just such a baby. Like there's no reason for a baby like that to be in the army. But anyway, so I enlisted in the army national, no, in the army reserve, in a reserve unit in my hometown. And then a year later, I got into West Point. And so I was able to go to West Point starting in 1993, graduated in 1997, and went off to, I was just an armor officer. I was just doing armor officer stuff. When September 11th happened, I was in ranger school. I just started ranger school and completed ranger school and then went on to serve in Korea. And I sort of thought I'd missed the war until 2000, spring of 2004, my boss came to me and said, hey, we're sending your soldiers to Iraq. I was a company commander at the time of a tank company. So I had about 100 soldiers working for me. And they, they said, hey, we're, you know, your tank company is going to Iraq. Do you want to go with them or not? And I'd already been selected to go to West Point and teach. And so I had a super cool assignment at grad school coming up. Of course, I said, obviously, I will go to combat and serve with my soldiers. I'm not going to send them off while I do some plum assignments. In August 2004, I ended up in, in Iraq and then was wounded the first time on November 10th, 04, when a rocket propelled grenade hit my tank and killed my loader, the soldier next to me. His name was Dennis Miller from LaSalle, Michigan. I think it's important to remember their names, you know. And then on January 10th, 2005, I was wounded again by this time by a roadside bomb and IED. And that IED just ripped through my Humvee and uh, my leg was in the way of the explosion. And I ended up with a big, huge hole in my leg and bleeding to death in the ditch. And a Marine Corps helicopter came to get me and took me to a Navy surgical facility. And the Marines and the Navy saved my life. I ended up unconscious at Walter Reed for about three weeks and in the ICU at Walter Reed for about two and a half or three months, depending on what level of ICU you're talking about. I had about 40 surgeries, 45 surgeries, something like that total. And by June or so of 05, I was discharged from the hospital. And in November, I was able to actually PCS because I had some outpatient stuff. But during that time, I just decided, you know, I wasn't going to let the enemy determine when I got out of the army, I was going to get out when I was good and ready. And so I stayed in the army, I was able to put in basically the paperwork to allow me to stay in the army, despite obviously being by nature of having a hip level amputation, I was disqualified from service. But they let me stay in because I still had something to offer the army and the army had something to offer to me. And so it was mutually beneficial. So I went and got a master's degree in public policy and then worked at the White House for a year doing veterans policy. 
which was awesome. And then I went and got a PhD in public policy. And then I went and taught at West Point for six years. But really this book, the roots of the book, and I retired from the army in 17 as a lieutenant colonel, but the, the roots of this book really go back to Walter Reed because while I was trying my best to get better, I discovered that there, I looked around me and I saw that there were a lot of brand new, fresh wounded veterans, you know, who they were active duty, of course, at the time, but they were going to be veterans who had really bought into the idea that the best way to go about their future life was to accept as much free stuff as possible, to be part of that recipient class instead of continuing to people of worth and meaning who were, who were doing stuff and who were helping their families and who were thriving in their communities and stuff. They had really bought into the idea that because they had served that they were heroes and some of them were legit heroes, but that, and, and then that because they were heroes, the country owed them everything. And the way they conceptualized that owing was in terms of finances. And so these people were folks that um, had really bought into the lie that when the government takes care of you, that that's enough. And so that's when I started observing the principles in the book personally and then later, when I was at, in my master's and my PhD and, t- and at, working at the White House, I began to observe it professionally and, and discovered that this was a very widespread problem. And so, I mean, the premise of the book, and it's available for anybody on woundingwarriors.com, I'll send you a signed copy. But the premise of the book essentially is that our country pays veterans to be sick and then wonders why we have so many sick veterans. A silly fact that is horrifying, if you think about it, is that we pay more money in disability benefits every year than we do in healthcare for veterans, which means that we're paying them, we're paying more money to be sick than we are to be, to get people healthy. And I think that's an upside down balance and we can do better by our servicemen and women. Great. I think that's a great start and a great segue to start on the roots of dissecting this book. Do you mind? I want to go a little bit chapter by chapter and ask you some questions. That's lovely. Yeah. Lovely. Okay. So I want to start out with, in chapter five, you discuss how some service members really had no idea the identity loss they would sustain when getting out of the military and how unit cohesion is something that they would find nothing comparable to in civilian world and how hard this realization can be. So I thought this was so interesting and relatable. Can you talk more on this? And that's the first part of the question. And then how do we fix that? that that extreme sense of loss so that it does not manifest into isolation or long-term into suicide or just the feeling that one never truly fits into society. Yeah, it is a long-term sense of loss. So I'll just tell a personal story, Lindsay. When I personally retired, like I'd been one of those guys who, you know, I had a PhD and I was a college professor and I was whatever, like I'm high human capital, I'm going to be fine. And when I retired, I remember I retired on a Friday and I, you know, so I stopped going to work on Friday and on Monday, I'm sort of sitting around and, and I'm waiting for the phone to ring and the phone doesn't ring. You know, the people where I'd been the problem solver, I'd been the fixer. I'd been the guy who knew everything and knew where all the, where all the levers were hidden. And so I was the guy who was, was, you know, I was the man. And then all of a sudden on Monday morning, I wasn't the man anymore and nobody needed me and nobody called. And that was profoundly, I mean, like profound identity shift. I mean, that was really tough. And I was a guy with a happy marriage and happy children and a PhD and, you know, 
no particular mental disorders to speak of, like I'm fine. And yet I wasn't fine at all. And it was really hard for a couple of months and I miss it. You know, like I, I look back personally and I like, and this would probably be terrifying for my wife if she, if she ever watches this podcast or listens to it, but like maybe combat was, it was the most clear my life had ever been because I had utter sense of purpose I knew what I was doing each day, even though as a grave risk, obviously, of life and eventually cost of limb, it was a joy. I loved it. And yet there's nothing like that in the civilian world. I mean, you can go mountain biking and for a brief period of time, you'll have the focus of, you know, if you if you let your mind wander when you're on the bike, you're going to fall off. And that's not great. Or if you, you can go rock climbing and you can get that sense of focus briefly, or you can be part of a team or you can be part of a loving marriage and you can have that kind of thing. But it is it is something that is hard to replicate in the civilian world. And what we just what we talk about in chapter five is that every veteran eventually gets out of the army, you know, or the military. Right. I, I say army because I was in the army for many years, but everybody gets out of the army eventually. So how do you prepare for that? And our society does a very poor job of preparing veterans for it because we we take we take people out of society and let's say they're let's conceptualize them as a plow it's productive it can make civil it can do civilian things with a plow we bring them into the army and we put them through basic training or officer basic or whatever we beat them into a sword and now you have a sword made of the same metal as the plow but when they leave the military we don't ever convert them back into a plow we just leave them as a sword and we throw the sword in the corner and the sword gets rusty and we don't bother really except through some really pathetic programs to try to make them back into a plow. And I think our goal should be to make them into a plow, not to mourn the fact that they're no longer a sword. Wow. Profound identity loss. I just love that terminology. I I just really, really think that's powerful and really defines how that feels. And then I, I do identify with, it was the clearest time of my life. I think that a lot of veterans can relate to that. So thank you for those. Thank you for yeah, that. Sure. I want to go to chapter 12 and we'll return to this chapter a couple of times because this was my favorite chapter. Right. I think I listened to it like four times. You and I talked about this offline, but I had to listen to your book in chunks because it made me think about my own uh, 100% disability rating for PTSD from the VA. Yeah. And, and although I didn't directly fit into the categories in your book, because I fought my own men- my own medical administrative discharge because I wanted to stay in the army. It really made me think about how the civilian world told me I was broken and how this defined my new identity going into the civilian world. So I was pondering how that disability rating shaped my new life and why the first years of my transition were so hard and complicated. Yeah. So I want to thank you for that. Um, but I was hoping we could go into chapter 12 a little bit and discuss that because I, I just think the message here was so on point and powerful. Yeah. First, let's talk. I think we should talk about PTSD. And a lot of people have gone away from using the D in disorder. I keep it. And I talk about PTSD because I, it is a disorder. It's not, it ought not to be a lifelong thing. Post-traumatic stress should never be allowed to mature into post-traumatic stress disorder if we can head it off in the past. But once somebody is deeply into that phase, I think we should go ahead and just leave the D on it because it is, a, it is disordered. But PTSD is not one thing. PTSD is a label 
that applies to many, 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 many things. There's a whole bunch of stuff that's under it. So depression and anxiety and a, a variety of other things, which are pretty normal in the human condition, are all part of the overall PTSD diagnosis. And despite some media reporting on this, the, the VA, and it depends greatly, there's a 2005 report that showed that this was true, but there's wild variation among the different agencies and the groups that in, in the VA that, that give ratings. But PTSD is not a hard disorder to fake. So, so if you are willing to do the work of faking it, it's possible to fake it. There are online checklists that you can download that say, hey, if you go into your appointment, so 100% PTSD diagnosis, I was just looking up the diagnostic criteria the other day, disorientation to place and self. In other words, you don't even know who you are, much less where you are. Inability to recall the names of close family members. No ability to maintain basic personal hygiene. Like this is, we're talking about people who are in, on paper, a 100% PTSD diagnosis should mean somebody who is profoundly incapable of functioning in society. Unfortunately, there's been this diagnostic creep where the VA is more and more giving people like, I mean, frankly, people like you who are truly, you know, maybe you definitely had a rough patch as you described, but now you're rebuilding a career and you're doing some very interesting stuff and you're doing this podcast and you're lobbying and you're doing all this stuff. So the question is, is a permanent PTSD diagnosis an appropriate response to what is a temporary condition? So there's this guy named Richard McNally. He's a doctor at Harvard. He's a clinical psychologist. And he wrote this paper a few years ago, and I, I don't have it right in front of me, so I can't remember the title of it. But in it, he described how rape victims, and he did this study on rape victims, and people who'd been victims of rape were unlikely to recover if a couple of things were true, and one of the things that was true that made it unlikely for them to recover was if they put the rape at the center of their identity and held it there. So imagine somebody who's been raped, who wears a, sign, wears a shirt that says, you know, rape survivor, right? If they're putting it at the center of their identity and becoming a person who leaves that at the center of their identity, then they're, then they're not able to, to grow beyond it. And the post-traumatic stress does not become post-traumatic growth. And so with the veteran thing, it's very interesting. You know, we have folks who are suffering from a mental health crisis or crises, plural, and we give them a one-time rating that says you are permanently and totally disabled, even though the condition itself in civilian contexts is entirely treatable, should be temporary, and only in very rare cases is it something that prevents somebody from functioning long-term in society. And so there's a mismatch. You know, there's a brand new paper out, and I've got it right here pulled up on my, on my uh, desktop over here. And it basically says, that it's, it's a study of PTSD treatments. And it says that people who were receiving or seeking compensation for PTSD diagnoses were unable or were, were, they did not respond to any treatments, even though everybody else did respond to treatments. In other words, the disability benefit or the possibility of losing the disability benefit is a disincentive for folks to get better. And there's no 
there's no way for them to get better. And it's, it's really horrifying. We should not trap young men and women in a position of brokenness if we can avoid it. And chapter 12 is about some people who, you know, frankly, there's some people in chapter 12 who are kind of grifters and who are milking their diagnoses for all they can. And it hurts our country in three, in like two ways, at least. One of the ways it hurts our country is that it makes, it reduces overall propensity to serve. And what that means is like when a parent is looking at their child, they, and the kid says, Hey, I want to go in the army. What do you think? If the parent's perception of all veterans is that they're mentally ill, broken, pathetic, whatever, then they're going to say, no, you can't go in the army. That's crazy. You'll just end up mangled and broken mentally or physically. And the other way it hurts is that real suffering veterans who really do have a mental health crisis are often buried in a pile of people who are just seeking a mental health diagnosis so that they can get paid for it. And as a result, it's very difficult for the true sufferers to be separated out from the, from the, um, from the chaff and given the treatment they need to actually be better. And so they end up circling the drain and getting worse and worse and self-isolating and, you know, their social relationships decline. And it's no surprise to me that we have a suicide crisis because suicide is a disease of despair and, the government right now pays people to sit around and feel despairing instead of helping them thrive. Yeah, very valid points. And you talk about this in your epilogue. And just for our listeners, that's where when you're reading this book, that's where Daniel actually talks about his own story. So you go through the book and you hear about this and you don't hear about his particular story until the epilogue. But you talk about that in the epilogue that if you don't get treatment for your PTSD, then why should the VA pay for it? Yeah. Yeah. So the the idea there, and it's it shouldn't be super controversial that if you're not seeking to get better, then why should we pay you to be sick? Why should society pay you to be sick? But it would be it would help veterans in a couple of ways, actually. So let's imagine that we have a veteran who is truly sick and is truly seeking treatment. And every time he goes in the treatment notes, there's a little checkbox and the and the psychologist checks the block and that way the veteran will get their payment. Cool. Perfect. That means we've got a person who's sick. We're getting them the treatment they need and hopefully they'll get better. Case number two is somebody who is a grifter and they are, they're highly functional. They got a one-time PTSD diagnosis, potentially from one of the fly-by-night outfits that'll, that'll give you a uh, disability benefits questionnaire that's filled out already with your name on it for like 500 bucks cash or 250 bucks cash. They'll give you one without ever seeing you. And they'll say you're profoundly disabled. You know, that person turns his paperwork in, he gets a 70 or 60 or hundred percent disability rating. He's going to get awfully sick of going to the VA and sitting there just so he can get his monthly checkbox. Right. So maybe he stops coming and that'd be great because we don't need him and he doesn't really need the payment and he's not really sick. So why are we paying? That's case two. Case three is actually the most interesting one to me. Case three is a veteran who's very, very sick. So sick, in fact, that he cannot go out. So sick that he's truly homebound. He's disoriented to time and place. He can't do personal hygiene. He's in real danger. He's in a crisis. If he doesn't show up for his mental health appointment, the first trigger should be somebody should, you know, the the system that I've sort of conceptualized here would be one where now the VA reaches out to him. Or you send a deputy sheriff to the house to do a welfare check, or you send a nurse to the house to do a welfare check. And now you've got 
somebody who is really sick getting the emergency health care they need. And so now that's a way of identifying those people who otherwise might end up being a suicide statistic. So it helps in a couple of different ways. And the veteran service organizations would hate that concept because they are utterly uninterested in the main. There's a few that are good, but in the bulk of them would rather have veterans in crisis than to seek uh, true solutions to their problems. And you, and you also kind of talk about that again, how Congress, that's the one thing that they can all agree on is that we yeah. can continue to give veterans these disability yeah. benefits. Yeah, that's exactly right. But I do want to segue into um, chapter six. And you talk about how uh, disability ratings are highly prioritized over other VA benefits like the GI Bill. And in addition, you discuss how veterans are being encouraged to claim as many disabilities as possible in the claim process and even later on um, in their lives. And I first would like you to elaborate that on this. The second part of this is how do we encourage veterans to use their educational benefits so that it's meaningful to the veteran, produces an outcome where education advances their civilian career, and in general enhances their life, and that the last still isn't a mismanage for the American taxpayer, which you do reference in this chapter. Yeah, so that's a, a lot of questions, and I'll try to have it written down here, so that's good. The first thing I'd say is every veteran knows this, but for the non-veterans who might see this podcast, when you go through transition assistance program, which is the last, you know, that you have to go through this week-long thing at the end of your time in the Army or military and it's really pretty terrible. Typically, you're sitting in this classroom, there's like 40 people in there, and they give you like one or two days on job readiness and on educational benefits and all that. And then like three days of, hey, here's how you apply for disability benefits. And they literally say, and we talk about it in the book, and I, it was my experience as well, that they literally say, hey, if you have a hurt shoulder, claim it. If you, have a, if you once twisted your ankle in basic training, claim it. If you've got a hangnail, claim it. If you have any, and, and they, they actually emphasize this point, it's the craziest thing that they say, if you have any mental disability, it's very hard to prove and you should claim it <laughs> like that, literally with like the little evil laughter, because, because what they're saying is, hey, if you want to fake it, we'll help you fake it. And so when I went to my VA claim thing, it was, I was retiring from the army. The guy was like, listen, you didn't put PTSD on here. I'm like, well, I don't have PTSD. I don't, you know, thankfully I, I don't have flashbacks. I don't have bad dreams. I don't lash out at my wife. Like I'm fine. It's fine. I'm good. And he's like, well, listen, dude, just put it down and you'll get paid for it. I'm like, you listen to me. I'm not going to, because I don't have that condition. Another example. And for my own claim was that the guy was like, Hey, what about your brain injury? And I go, well, I don't have a brain injury. He goes, well, but you were unconscious. True. And he goes, listen, dude, what about your brain injury? And I, I don't have brain injury. And he's still like knocking on the table, like literally with the knocking on the table thing. And he goes, listen, you were unconscious. You have a brain injury. I can get you paid for it. And I go, listen, since I got blown up, I've gotten a master's and a PhD. I've worked at the White House and I've taught college for six years. I don't have a brain injury, you know? And he's like, fine, whatever. And so it was this, there was this deliberate effort to try to get me to say things that weren't true. And if I, if you extrapolate that across the 300,000 veterans who get out of the military each year, 250,000, 
how many of them are going to be willing to turn down what they view as free money and what the VA is literally calling free money. I just think it's a stretch to think that they're going to be able to turn that down. It's pretty tough to do. Disability rating stuff gets multiple days and education benefits only get one or even half of one. And, and listen, you know, fundamentally what our obligation to our veterans is, is not to just give them free stuff. Like, you know, there's a lot of ways you can get free stuff. Our, our, our obligation to our veterans is not to give them free stuff. Instead, our obligation to our veterans ought to be something like, how do we help them thrive? How do we get people to reskill, upskill, transition their skills in a way that allows them to stand on their own two feet? Uh, you know, if they have two feet, which I don't own one, but to stand on their own, own two feet, <laughs> How do we, how do we, how do we get them to transition in a healthy, successful way? And for some people, higher education is the, is the key, right? For others, it might be earning a truck driver certificate because these days a truck driver is making 60,000 hauling lumber. And if he can haul hazmat, he can make 110,000, you know, that's a lot of money, dude. So, so, you know, for some people it's truck driving and some people, you know, if you're a, if you're a journeyman welder, and you can weld exotic metals, you can make 80 bucks an hour. And if you can weld exotic metals underwater, you can make 300 bucks an hour. I mean, you're talking real money now. So there are things that don't require higher education. I've been a college professor for a long time, and there are a hell of a lot of people in higher education who do not need to be getting college degrees. So yeah, the, the education infrastructure needs to be such that college is not necessarily prioritized over career and technical education. And there are some ways that you can get people to really embrace that. For example, you could do cash rewards for certain kinds of things. You know, if somebody completes a associate's degree in something or they complete a certificate in welding or they get their commercial driver's license, cool, let's have a let's have a financial reward that goes with that so that there's a carrot instead of just a um, stick. And, and to just, you know, people respond to incentives. And so we got to figure out what the right levers and incentives are to help people get through that stuff. Um, and, you know, higher ed is great. It's fine, but it's not for everybody. And, you know, some people have wounds or disabilities that, re- that preclude that. And that's fine. We should, we should, for each person, we should, we should be trying to close the gap between where they could be and where they are, and how do you close that gap? Well, it depends. It's person-to-person variant. But right now what we do is we take those swords and we throw them in the corner. What we should be doing is taking those swords, finding ways to make each sword into a useful tool, and helping them get there. And we, and we don't do that in any kind of way right now. Yeah, you made a lot of great points there. And I just want to call out to my 88 Mike soldiers that I hope are listening. Did you hear what he said about the truck driver thing? And you guys are already tracking that, but there's a lot of money to be made in truck driving. And, and by the way, Lindsay, if, if any of your people uh, reach out to you, any of your buddies who maybe watch your podcast or 88 Mike's, I've got a guy in Richmond, Virginia, who has a trucking company. And you may absolutely introduce me to that veteran and I will put them in touch with a guy who will absolutely employ them on day one and they'll make a crap ton of money, a lot more than they're making now. I really appreciate that. I have a few that I know are really, really could use that hookup. So thank you. Thank you. Happy to do Uh, it. Another point I wanted to make on that too, a quick one is that I was shocked because as I mentioned, I didn't really want to get out of the military. So I hadn't done any research. I was shocked that they were going to pay for my master's. I, and you talk about like giving people free stuff. 
I actually felt that was really generous. And I know people are like, oh, that was a benefit that you earned. And, but I, I was just very, very grateful that they paid for my school and then you get the stipend and, and I still have money left over if I want to go to law school or, so I just wanted to note that, that I, I really think that that benefit is gracious and I'm sure people won't like me saying that, but. Well, it, it is nice to, it is nice to be taken care of. And I think that's the right approach is to help people meet their maximum potential. And we should even prioritize that above, you know, disability benefits. Cause why would you pay something, somebody to be broken when you can make them not broken through education or training? I, I 100% agree. Okay. I'm going to give you a pass on chapter 13. Cause we kind of already discussed that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I do want to just touch real quick. You have, we have kind of discussed this a little bit. I do want to discuss chapter 12 again, in the sense that some veterans feel like they need this disability to solidify what they did in combat or to, and I'll let you talk. Well, and and they use it as an excuse for bad behavior or an excuse to themselves about why they're miserable or why they make the people in their lives miserable. Love that point. If you could talk more on that for just a second. And then I want to get into, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, totally. So, so if you're a, I don't know if you're a Bible person, we never talked about that, but everybody knows the story of Adam and Eve, right? So there's this tree and God says, you know, don't eat the the fruit. And, you know, the serpent tells Eve, Hey, go eat the fruit. It's awesome. And so Eve goes and eats the fruit, right? And then she likes it. So she gives some to Adam. And then, and, and the, like Eve taking the apple is the first sin, right? And then, and then her giving it to Adam is the second sin. And then the third sin is the most interesting because the third sin is something that we all suffer from. And that is when God comes to Adam and says, Hey, what the heck is going on here? You know, you two, you two not knuckleheads. I told you not to do this. I'm heavily paraphrasing the book of Genesis, by the way, Adam says, it's her fault. The woman you gave me made me do this. And that's blame shifting and blame shifting is a, as as old as humanity as illustrated in the book of Genesis. Right. So the blame shifting gives you a nice warm blanket because let's imagine that you have like, there's a guy, there's a story in the book that we talk about a Marine who had has serious mental illness. I mean, he has schizophrenia and he's a, he's a mess and he blames it on. uh, And by the way, schizophrenia is different than PTSD, not even the same symptom set, but the VA diagnosed him with PTSD, despite his real diagnosis being schizophrenia, but we interviewed his wife and she's like, yeah, definitely his PTSD schizophrenia is due to his military service. Okay. You know, tell me more about his lifestyle and, or tell me about more about him. And he's, and she's like, well, you know, his mom and his dad both had schizophrenia from way back when, and he had a schizophrenic break in high school and did a lot of drugs in high school and did a lot of drugs after he got out of the Marine Corps, including like really hard drugs. But his condition is really the fault of military service. And it's like, well, actually, maybe you're blame shifting, right? Because in part, schizophrenia is, is uh, genetic, you know, and both of his parents had it. And in part, there's some lifestyle components to serious mental illness, like, like being a user of, of certain kinds of hard drugs can really help you along the way to a really serious mental health crisis. And, and yet the comfortable thing is to say it's the government's fault. 
It's my fellow citizens' fault. Not my fault. It's fellow, fellow citizens' fault. Another example is the diagnosis of type 2 diabetes among adults, especially Vietnam veterans, has gone off the chain lately because it was it was made a presumptive disability for anybody serving Vietnam that if they have type 2 diabetes, it's related to Agent Orange, and therefore they can get disability compensation for it. It's free. All you got to do is sign up. And if you have diabetes and you're a Vietnam veteran, you get service-connected compensation for that diabetes. Well, type 2 diabetes is a lifestyle condition. Everybody knows this. The way to get type 2 diabetes for sure is to allow yourself to get fat. And if you're 50 or 60 pounds overweight, you are for sure going to get diabetes. That's something that is a a well-known affliction. And 40% of Americans are obese. So... If you have type 2 diabetes, you have two choices. Again, choice one is to say, maybe I should put down the fork and go for a walk, you know? And I'm sort of being a smart aleck about it because losing weight is hard or else I'd be 180 pounds right now instead of 202. But, but, you know, are you doing the lifestyle thing? Are you responsible for your own lifestyle choices? Are you responsible for whether you're fat? Well, maybe. Or if you are one of those Vietnam veterans, you can point your finger at government and say, it's the government's fault that I have type two diabetes. Not my fault. Not me. No, not me. Not me with my bowl of ice cream. And I'm using a bowl of ice cream example because I have a friend whose father is a Vietnam veteran who eats a bowl of ice cream every night. And he's from Wisconsin and that's what they do there. Apparently. Where are you from? I hear an accent that's like adorable accent, Northern (laughs) tier someplace, right? Um, Toledo, Ohio. Okay. Okay. So not quite to Wisconsin, but in that direction, I'm from North Dakota and I fully empathize with the Wisconsin people who love cheese and, and ice cream. But anyway, so he eats a bowl of ice cream every night. That's what he does after dinner. And he's like 80 pounds overweight, but he will, with a straight face, will say it's his Vietnam service and his agent orange exposure, which causes him to be, to have type two diabetes. Well, not, not just not true. It's just not true, but it's easy to say that that my service caused everything that's wrong with me to from one to n instead of saying well maybe some of those things are my own responsibility because if you make it your own responsibility it's hard to fix if you make it somebody else's responsibility you get paid for it and there's a lot of veterans who would rather do that than say it's my own fault and 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 it's, it's completely common sense for them to do it the va will pay you to be sick that's the, that's the lesson here. The VA will pay you to be sick. And by the way, I'm 100% not against service dogs, including for people with, with PTSD. I think they can be very helpful. But the other problem, or the other thing that people do is they, the dog or the, or the, you know, PTSD fireworks sign, which we talk about in the book or any of those things, those are an outward symbol of, Hey, I served, you should respect me. And it becomes this virtue signaling, which is like, like, be proud of your service. You know, if you're a generator mechanic, be proud of that. If you're a rifleman, be proud of that. If you're a fighter pilot, that's great. Don't try to, don't try to claim honors and glory that do not rightfully belong to you. And a lot of cases, there are people who have diagnoses who can't wait to tell you about them because in some way they think that that makes them legit, you know, and because I, you know, I'm the one leg and go around on crutches because I'm a hip level amputee and 
prosthetics suck for hip level amputees. Um, people will always come up to me, Hey, are you veteran? And yeah. And they say, well, I'm hundred percent disabled too. And like, that's their, that's their intro to me. It's like, I'm hundred percent disabled. I'm like, well, I'm sorry to hear that, man. I'm sorry to hear you're so, you know, I'm sorry to hear you're so broken. You know, I like, what do you say to that? How's that your first, how's that your first intro to somebody? But it happens all the time. Yeah. And you probably want to be like, so what are you doing right now? What are you doing with your life? And yeah, yeah, how, yeah, yeah. yeah. Virtual signaling. I like that. I think we do that with license, uh, license plates. We do that with the dogs. We do that with the veteran court systems, which I yeah. have been guilty of using. So I'm t- completely guilty of that as well. We do that with. What did you do to get put in veteran court? I had a couple drinking issues when I oh, first got okay. out. Okay. Um, yeah, and I'm, and not, you know, I'm not afraid. My, I put that out on this podcast before, but I, you know, I cleaned my act up and, and here, we're here now, but yeah. I was grateful for the second second chance, but I don't necessarily know if I should have, if I should have been given that chance, you know, as opposed to other people that also had, you know, did the same thing. I think I was, I was shown special dispensation. Yeah. yeah. And it kind of also goes into like the five point, 10 point um, hiring thing as well for federal government. But I don't want to get into that. I would like to just before I let you go, I'd like to talk a little bit about your the campaign that you ran, why you ran and what your political aspirations are in the future. Well, given that veterans policy is like the third rail of politics, maybe my aspirations will come to nothing because I've said some pretty controversial things in the book. So if you want to buy the book, woundingwarriors.com, I will absolutely send you a signed copy again. But yeah, so I ran for U.S. Senate last year in Virginia. Virginia is a pretty blue state. I'm a pretty conservative guy. And so I, I lost. I got more votes. I'm pretty proud of this. I got more votes than any Republican in Virginia statewide history, but I still lost by like 400,000 votes. But, but I, here's what I think about politics. I think that veterans are the perfect people to run and politically left or right. I don't care about that. What I do care about is getting the best people in office and veterans have a commitment to the constitution, a commitment to service, commitment to other people that hopefully will heal some of the divides we see in our country. Like, you know, when, if you cut your skin and the skin parts, what fills the gap is blood, right? Well, when a society begins to tear apart, what fills the gap is political violence. And what we see in what we saw during the height of the Black Lives Matter protests was political violence in our inner cities primarily, right? And what we saw on January 6th was political violence. Let's be totally clear about all that. So, so when a society is beginning to tear apart, we have political violence. And our job as veterans, our job as citizens, much less, you know, much less veterans, should be to heal that and to close the gap. And I think veterans can do that. Like, Tammy Duckworth, you know, I ran for U.S. Senate and had I gotten elected, I'd be a colleague of uh, Senator Tammy Duckworth from Illinois, combat veteran, lost both legs in combat when her helicopter was shot down, almost lost her arm. She and I could not be more different politically. But we were in the hospital together. You know, she was wounded two months before I was wounded. And we have very similar injuries. So we have what I call a fellowship of suffering. You know we could work together on a whole lot of disability stuff and a whole lot of veteran stuff. And at least we would understand each other because we have, we would have a fellowship of suffering. And I think that veterans can have a fellowship of service that takes us beyond some of the hyper-partisanship that we see tearing our country apart right now. And it, cause it's gross. 
it's totally unacceptable. It's nasty. And, and so that's why, that's why I ran is to be part of it, part of the eventual healing of our country. Cause it's, it's either healing or it's civil war and civil war is terrible. Well, she's also kind of a badass too. When she brought her baby onto the floor and was breastfeeding. Yeah. I mean, that yeah, was yeah, kind of cool. I have to give it to her for that one. Yeah. Um, I think the first U S Senator who's brought a, a baby onto the floor of the Senate, I think is, uh, is Tammy. And what was so cute about it and they talked about is that she dressed the baby in the dress code requirements of the Senate floor. Oh, that's funny. Like, like a tie. Is it a boy or girl? Do you know? It was a girl and I, I, and it has, so the women have to have like a certain coverage of their shoulders. And so the baby was covered and they were talking about, I just, I thought that was like really cool. Yeah. I know you have twins and you have three kids yourself. Yeah. I've got great kids. Do you want to talk about, I did not ask you this ahead of time, but did you want to say anything about your Dan Crenshaw interview today or? Well, sure. I mean, if you, if you are interested, if you see, if you watch through to this point, I appreciate that very much. I hope you subscribe to Lindsay's podcast. And I also was on Dan Crenshaw's podcast today. Today is uh, Thursday, September 23rd. I think that interview will go up soon. And Dan and I had a very interesting conversation about this. Of course, his perspective is you know he's a conservative republican but he's also combat wounded and a a very interesting guy he and i have known each other for a few years and um i don't know him super well but we had a really fun interesting discussion he's a good dude so uh go watch that too yeah and those of you who watch my post you've seen that i i said and i actually mean this i I didn't just say this that i haven't read a book as good as is yours since Dan Crenshaw's book, Fortitude. So I think, awesome. both, and they're both on audio. Is yours actually out on audio yet? Or did I just get a preview? No, it's not out on audio. I get you, the one you got was a leaked pre-version. Okay, we'll just skip that part. Um, no, but no, no, but no, no, no. I mean, I, I can give it to whoever I want, but it'll be out It'll be out in October on audio. And it's available on Amazon. The book's available on Amazon right now on audio, digital, and print. And it's available. The best way to, to buy it, if you want to read it, is to buy it on woundingwarriors.com because that way Jeff Bezos doesn't keep all the money. Awesome. And then I wanted to talk one last thing about your, the review that came out. I believe it was Washington Street, Wall Street Journal. Or Washington, Wall, Wall okay. Street Journal. Yep. Wall Street Journal. And it was, it was a great review for your first one, right? I don't think yeah, you could totally. have asked for really more. Happy about that. Yeah, really happy about that. So yeah, Wall Street Journal has reviewed it. You know, I think during Veterans Week, I think I'm going to be on Fox News and hopefully on CNN as well. So we're really trying to we're really trying to get this story out there because I think every veteran is is owed a chance to thrive, and our current system makes them sicker and poorer, which is the subtitle of the book. And I do just have to comment. This is stating the obvious, but I love how you used um, wounded warriors, wounding warriors. Yeah. obviously i mean it come on you have to love it it took me a second but i love it well so you know wounding is the idea of actually inflicting a wound and my point is that bad policy is inflicting wounds on our on our soldiers and then the cover art is a tattered american flag because our policy makes veterans more tattered than they ought to be even if like some of us even if we are even if we are already pretty tattered Fair enough. All right, guys, if you're listening to this podcast, we'll put up the link where you can buy this book. And I just want to thank you, Daniel, for coming on. We love your message. We love the interview. Is there any any last minute thoughts before I let you go? Yeah, that was great fun. I, I really appreciate that. And again, you know, this is about bad systems, not about bad people. You know, I, I appreciate everybody's service and and the veterans who have served and sacrificed mentally, physically, emotionally for our country. I'm deeply grateful to you. 
All right. We'll be following you. Thank you so much. Perfect. Thanks. Bye.